So the title of tonight's reflection is, Now That You Know, What Do You Know? We've been through a lot of instruction in these days together, and we feel as though you've got enough instruction knowledge. You know how to practice sitting on retreat. So tonight, what I would like to do is add context and perspective as you go about your practice, both on retreat and in your ongoing life. We've explored in depth the three noble truths and the three insights with each truth. And now we've arrived at this moment of path where you consider path and where you start to relate to the question, do I choose the path? Do I choose this as my path? Of course, in one sense, you've already chosen this as your path because you're here doing this intense practice. And many of you have been doing it for a number of years. And yet, in my experience, we have to choose path over and over again for such a long time because there's so many distractions, so many reasons for doubt. So there's a renewal of the commitment to path that's uh, repeated. It, it's called forth time and again. And then at some point, you know, you just know this is my path, I'm on it. And there's, there's not that same pull away, you're doing the Eightfold Path. And even then, there is still this requirement to stay mindful about walking the path because it's so easy to get off the path. I hear this all the time from practitioners of 10 and 20, 30 years of practice. It's so easy to get off the path. And even when we have fully committed and we have this momentum going for us, there is still this necessity of starting over. No matter how solidly embraced we are with the path, we get lost time and time and time again. So we have to be willing to start over. And that is an humbling process. It's, it's a very modest endeavor, this walking the path. Modest because we never know if we're going to be on it the next moment or not. So there's no other position to take other than modesty, this uh, willingness to have what, uh, as Hugh was referring to last night in the Zen tradition, is beginner's mind. Uh, this uh, expression of beginner's mind in practice is, here I am now. <laughs> am I on the path or not on the path? Just no expectation, no judging yourself, no holding to all of these big ideas of standards. And our job, as we view it, is, is leading you during this retreat, is to empower you so that you can bring yourself back to the path. 
not being dependent on anyone else. This is one of the wonderful aspects of this tradition is that it uh, is this invitation to be a lamp unto yourselves. So there's a cartoon that I was telling the teachers about today and said I'm not going to give you the punchline, I'm going to wait and let you hear it with everyone else. Another one of my therapy uh, cartoons. So here's Humpty Dumpty in his therapist office. And Humpty Dumpty's sitting there with cracks everywhere, looking rather forlorn. And the therapist says to him, well, you know, eventually I'd like to see you be able to put yourself back together. <laughs> and that's our goal. We would like to see you put yourself back on the path. So many of you in interviews have reported a much deeper understanding of your own suffering, particularly in relation to the, 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 the kind of, of suffering that's, that's beyond just the, the physical pain and emotional pain that Adrian so beautifully described for us. And likewise, many of you have talked about realizing for the first time the kind of clinging that you're caught in in relation to wanting to become or to not be, and that this was a new understanding for you, this, this kind of clinging and uh, how helpful it's been. And for many of you, whether it's the smallest of small moments or a, a modest moment or a rather large event sitting here on the cushioner and walking meditation, you've had a little taste of freedom. You've had this sense of, ah, yes, this is the fruit of path. No matter how modest, so important to acknowledge that. This is one of the things to know now that you know. You know how to practice, and you know that there are many hindrances on the path, and that there's fruit from the path, and that you have to confront the hindrances, and that you, just as you are, can taste the fruit of the path. Right now, not some distant future, but right now when you show up to practice. So the Eightfold Path. What is the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering? Tenth insight. It is the noble Eightfold Path, right view, all of these words of right could be also translated as wise. It is the noble eightfold path, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. I'm not going to be going through each of these tonight. Adrian will refer to each of them tomorrow night as, as part of the a particular focus that she is taking, but rather to put the idea of path in context and perspective. When we choose path, let us be real with ourselves. We are not choosing a cushy alternative. We are not taking just the cream. We're choosing all of life, all of our lives, all of that yucky stuff, all of those uncertain moments, 
as well as the great moments and the neutral moments and the all pieces of being alive, you're choosing to be fully alive from my perspective. This is the way Ajahn Chah, my teacher Ajahn Sumedho's teacher, puts it. There are two kinds of suffering. There are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you are not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. So do you believe that or not? If you don't believe it, then I'd think twice about choosing the path. But if you do believe it, seems like a pretty obvious choice to me. There are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you're not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. Of course, when we choose that second kind of suffering, we run into ourselves, to all of those wounds, all of those disappointments, all of those uh, handicaps of whatever kind that happens to characterize us. It's the way it is. It's not a mistake. And just the way you are is good enough. This is a poem from Wendell Berry that I'm quite fond of. It's called The Real Work because when we choose the path, we're beginning the real work. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. It may be that when we no longer what to do, we have come to our real work, and that when we no longer which way to go, we have come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. The impeded stream is the one that sings. So as we make our way on our path, if we were making that path a moment of the water element and we were, we were going along the path and then we hit these rocks, we hit these uh, uh, limitations of our ability to practice, to be concentrated, to be patient with ourselves, to be kind to another, whatever these impediments are, these hindrances that arise, as I have said repeatedly in this retreat, those are not interferences with your practice. Those are your practice. It is the impeded stream that sings. That's what's calling out for your attention. That's the place to walk the path when you run into these impediments. Oh, this is a time for mindfulness. This is a time for loving kindness. This is a time for investigation. This is a time of staying present in the body and knowing what's here. My personal view of path is that it can be understood beneficially as a call for integral practice. So the path is integral practice. First of all, there are eight folds to the path. There are eight aspects to the path. So already you've got an integration of practice. 
each one leads to the other. You can start anywhere on the path and you end up with all eight of them. And it, there's, there's in one sense a developmental through the eight, but in another sense there's a, a constant movement back and forth, each increasing your understanding of the other, each saying, oh, now pay attention to this, now pay attention to this, each of these eight folds. It's an integrated system, and that is part of its beauty. And it's holistic because in each part is all the other parts. So holistic in that uh, all of those different meanings of the word. And from my view, it's an integral path because it's for the wholeness of your life. It's not just for coming on retreat. It's not that 20 minutes or two hours that you sit down on the cushion at home. It's not when, oh, I, I, I'm, I'm uh, feeling the suffering of life. Now I want, to, I want to really practice the path. It's every moment is gradually having your path become more and more the center of your life rather than some uh, supplement or some aid to your life, but your path and the life becoming one. I also view it as an integration of body and mind, this idea of path. That involves some sort of meditative practice, some sort of sitting practice of some kind, some sort of contemplative practice in that way, which we offer as Vipassana. And from my view, some sort of movement practice that keeps you in your body. For you, that may be the walking meditation, and that's as far as you go. I encourage yogis to uh, find some a kind of a more in-depth uh, in practice of movement because we, we in the West are, are so removed from the sense of being in our bodies that it's often uh, quite beneficial. And then from my view, some sort of service. The service brings you outside yourself. It's a way of helping you uh, escape from this uh, oppression of self-reference that's so rampant in normal life. And then finally, the path is in some way a path of renunciation. And if we have time, we're going to revisit that before it's over. Path is very mysterious. Right now, I'm involved in teaching a, a, a three-year program to yoga teachers to employ mindfulness in the way they teach their yoga class. And uh, their assignment as we sit here is to examine what they understand path to mean, for them to think about, well, what is path exactly? What does it mean, really? Is it like a philosophy? Is it a, is just a series of individual things? Is it something I'm doing? Is path the same as life? What does it mean? And I would leave you with that same kind of koan. What is path to you? T.S. Eliot uh, uh, captures it quite well in one piece of the four quartets. He uses the word prayer. I would have you use the word meditation when you hear this. There are only hints and guesses, hints followed by guesses. Isn't that beautiful? There are only hints and guesses, hints followed by guesses, and the rest is prayer, observance, discipline, thought, and action. He's describing the Eightfold Path. We 
can't know that which we're seeking. If we knew it, we wouldn't be seeking it by definition. And yet so often in our uh, uh, prejudice towards our cognitive states, we want to know what it is we're seeking or we, we are not willing to really give ourselves over to seeking it. But it isn't that way. It's mysterious, this path. Don't know mind. Don't know. Am I on the path or not? Don't know. Is this skillful or unskillful? Don't know. We start there over and over again back to this humility. Don't know. Don't know. That's the hints and guesses. But through walking the path, we learn what is path and what is not path. If you can embrace, if you can stand the cognitive dissonance of not knowing the very thing you're choosing to do, it's not a simple thing in that way. You are undergoing a, a, a real transformational kind of experience. It's a liminal space of moving in liminal. You're not what you were, but you've not become something else. It's liminal. You're somewhere in between. Taking a deep breath, coming back into the body, don't know mind, doing path as best we can. What do I mean by path? What do I mean? As we uh, develop our understanding of path, I would suggest to you that one of the things you will discover, it is both evolutionary and involutionary evolutionary in that it is a gradual path. You evolve as you go through it. It evolves in uh, seeing all of these connections. It evolves in your ability to stay on it, your, your ability to uh, have a different perception that's more subtle perception of what is meant by any aspect of path. It gets richer and more and more complex. But also like evolution in general, you know, you go off on dead ends. That's not a mistake. Evolution is like this. And likewise, you have this moment when you go over here and it, it felt like a dead end at the time, and then two years later, you're over here and you realize, oh, that was so necessary for this here. Wow, wow, that's the mystery. That's the mystery. It pains me when people won't trust their practice enough to realize this. Ajahn Sumedho over and over again says in these last few years, you must trust your practice. I ask him, what is the number one hindrance for Western students? Flat out, they don't trust their practice. So trust your practice. At the same time, Am I on the path or not on the path? Don't know. It's, it's, uh, it, it's uh, organic. It's much more fun when you just relax and accept that. It's much too serious to be solemn about it all the time. You know? Who are you to be so solemn about it? It's, you know, much of the time we're being quite funny whether or not we know it. All of us. No exception. So uh, it's also evolutionary in that you evolve past this uh, fixation on your separateness, which is part of the self-referencing that's so oppressive. A poem that describes this a little bit. 
this is from Tagore, the same stream of life that runs through the world runs through my veins day and night and dances in rhythmic measure. It is the same life that shoots in joy through the dust of the earth into numberless blades of grass and breaks into tumultuous waves of flowers. At this realm, the manifested realm that we are living in, the relative world, there is not the separateness. As we evolve, we lose this, uh, this uh, narrowness, this mistaken perception of separateness. And it comes in fits and starts and many different directions and um, many different ways it's been described and so forth. But that happens. So the path is evolutionary. The path is also involutionary. That is to say that it is already done. It's already complete. It's already all here. It's all done already. Finished. It lies there in potentia. Did it not lie there in potentia, there would be no way for it to ever come into manifestation. We are awakening to what is. We're not creating what is. This is one of these small but vital uh, misunderstandings. We get to thinking in our ego structure self, well, I've got to go out and do this practice. I've got to go out and I've got to become. I've got to, I've got to create something that isn't already there. I've got to make it in some way. I've got to bring these pieces together and somehow it'll all happen. That is not the teaching. The teaching is that there, it already is there and we discover it. The Buddha said those who only had a little dust in their eyes, they get to see for themselves. But again, this is not, um, this is not a small thing. How do we line up so that the unfolding of the Eightfold Path may happen? How do we align ourselves? How do we walk the path? This idea of modesty again. This is from Mary Oliver, and she's talking about um, uh, uh, going to Walden, and uh, one of the you know, great icons of American literature is how Walden how Henry Thoreau went to Walden to discover what was authentic and what was not authentic. It isn't very far as highways lie. I might be back by nightfall, having seen the rough pines and the stones and the clear water. Friends argue that I might be wiser for it. They do not hear that far-off Yankee whisper, how dull we grow from hurrying here and there. Many have gone and think me half a fool to miss a day away in the cool country. Maybe, but in a book I read and cherish, going to Walden is not so easy a thing as a green visit. It is the slow and difficult trick of living and finding it where you are. This is where we find the path, where you are.
Going to Walden is not so easy a thing as a green visit. It is the slow and difficult trick of living, the practice of living, the skill of living, and finding it where you are. As we choose this for ourselves and we run into our limitations, our ignorance, our trauma, all of the disappointments that have not been reconciled within us, we can really question our own worthiness in terms of being on the path. Another cartoon in the therapist office. So there's a, there's a, uh, do you call them a castle cone, a snow cone? What those things that have the little snow in it and you turn it upside down and it snows? What are they called? Snow, snow cone, snowball. So the snow cone, snowball, is there on, with the therapist. And uh, the, the snow cone says, if everyone is telling me I'm a collectible, why do I see myself as junk? We can get that way with ourselves. You know, where we run into a, 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 an impediment and we get confused that, that it's the impeded stream that sings. And we get to uh, uh, making judgment about ourselves. And that's just delusion. It's a real mistake. All of the practices we've done in terms of the Brahma Viharas are to help you get through that moment. Those moments will come the ones of you who are most self-assured, most filled with yourself, they will come to you. I've never met anyone who has any other report other than those moments come. You will feel like a piece of junk, not worthy of the practice, not worthy of happiness, not able to achieve this. And yet the Buddha said two things. One, you can look everywhere and find no one more worthy of happiness than yourself. And also, all that you need is found in this fathom-long body. This is the end of the world right here, the end of this world of, of ever-changing. It's found right here. And so we, we go forth uh, to be on path. To me, to be on path is to be available to the Dharma. In this moment, am I available to the Dharma or not available to the Dharma? In this moment. You can be sitting there on the cushion and not available to the Dharma, right? When, you, when you've chosen to stick with that great romantic fantasy that you were having, and three or four times you started to come out of it, but it was just too delicious, <laughs> right? And there was no mindfulness present. Are you available to the Dharma in that moment? Thus the need to start over. Not to judge yourself, but to start over. To know when you're available and to know when you're not available. This is one of the things you know. You know that you need to be available to the Dharma for uh, the, the path to unfold. It's pretty logical, pretty direct, that understanding. Of course, you have to have the aspiration, but we've already seen from Ajahn Chah's choice for us that for most of us, it's, uh, sitting here at least, it's pretty clear that we choose to walk the path. From that aspiration, uh, one of the things that I believe personally to be absolutely critical 
is a mature understanding of wise intention. So important is it that tomorrow night this is going to be Adrian's exploration, reflection here with all of us, really understanding the, the role of wise intention in the context of the whole path and your whole life, all the skillful living aspects of it. And it does require this uh, continual development of your mindfulness. Each of you are well on your way in terms of having access to mindfulness as an art, as a knowledge, as understanding, as a kind of science of the mind. You're well on your way, but there are always leagues to go. There's always more in this development of this. Last night, Hugh gave you the acronym of RAIN, where there is this, you, you recognize and you accept and you investigate and you non-identify. That's useful, just as he was suggesting. I also, though, like to break it down one more step than noticing what's arising right now. So noticing right now what's arising and sustaining your attention on it. Because for so many of us, if it's unpleasant, we turn away. Even if it's pleasant and how we're relating to it's got all this stickiness to it, we don't want to face that stickiness because we like it. We want to hold on to that. We're, we're, we're identified with our grasping. And so it takes the sustaining your attention long enough to really then start to have some clarity. So noticing what's arisen, sustaining your attention on it, fully receiving it as an experience in the body, in this body-mind, in this fathom-long body, to really receive it. Oh, it's like this. You know that you need to do this. You've seen the difference in this retreat when you can feel things in the body. So this, this willingness to fully receive it, that's why the practice of the loving-kindness and the compassion and the forgiveness, all the Brahma-Vihara work we've done is so important. To fully receive a lot of your experiences requires a lot of support. And through the Brahma-Viharas, we learned to self-comfort, to self-soothe, to keep us in the middle path. Without it, we go spinning off. It's too hard. Not a mistake. It's just hard. Walking the path, we walk into a lot of places where it's hard. And so we're, we're aware of what's arisen, we sustain our attention on it, we fully receive it, and we investigate it. Sometimes lightly, well, seen this movie many times, don't need to watch this one again. Oh, I've walked into that door and busted my nose many times. I think I'll go around it this time, or push it open, or whatever is the right uh, metaphor. And then this non-identification uh, from my view of seeing the impersonal. So it's not just not identifying as like, oh, I don't want to identify with it. It's an actual practice of seeing the impersonal in it. Fear is like this. My fear and your fear and your fear and your fear, it's fear. It's just fear. We each have an individual experience of it that's unique each time we have it. But fear is just fear. Longing, wanting, it's just wanting. I've listened to thousands and thousands of yogis describe their wanting, their disappointments, their aversions. It's the same aversion. It's the same wanting. <laughs> I can give testimony. 
<laughs> and so we, but we have to realize that over and over again. And each moment we realize it, that's a moment of path. That little small thing, oh, yeah, anger is like this. It's not like, oh, my anger is so unique. Oh, I'm so horrible because I have this anger. Oh, no, this is anger. Anger is like this. Oh, that's a moment of path. Here I am, angry as I'll get out, and yet I'm on path because I'm meeting this. I'm being with it. I may not do very well this time, but I'm with it. And in being with it this time, there will come a time in the future when I will do much better. And your own life experience proves that it's true. So it verifies for you. As long as there's this mindfulness that checks in, that knows, that stays current. As we walk path, there are many, many moments of insight. I can't think of a single one of you that did not report a series of insights in your interviews. Some of them were so small that maybe you didn't notice them as insight, but I did because I have more experience so I can recognize a moment of path more clearly than maybe you can. As you walk the path more, you will more and more be able to identify and appreciate and know you know, oh, this is a moment of insight. That moment of anger when you go, oh, it's just anger. Oh, this is restlessness. Many of you talked about sitting there and feeling restless and then realize, oh, it's just restless. Or, or many of you with pain, oh, it's just pain. And it didn't like take you over. You didn't become defined by it. It was just characterizing this moment. Oh, this is pain. That was a moment of insight. So a lot of these insights are personal, psychological, emotional, creative, practical for your world. And then the ones that we most value are those that are Dharma insights, big D Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, the way it is. In every little moment of insight, in this involuted way, there is that big D Dharma. So if we stayed with any insight long enough, we would come to a, a big insight. You can practice this some on your own and see that this is true. If you stay with any little realization you have and you keep going on, so what would be in the implication of this? And then what's the implication of that? And what's the implication of that? Wow, here you are in terms of really understanding the nature of all things through anything. There is a, a kind of um, confusing and mysterious interplay between the evolutionary aspects of path and this involutionary characteristic of path. And I term that interplay the imaginative possible. This is just a phrase I use because in my own time of sitting right here in this very room, that's the phrase that I came up with in my own practice, like, what's missing and, oh, now what's here? So when I use this phrase, the imaginative possible, I am referring to that moment when you realize, oh, this isn't just some series of words or some ideas. This is an actual possibility. It moves from a theoretical or uh, wouldn't it be great if to, oh, this is a real, genuine possibility. The imaginative possible has both, and it's possible for someone, and then as it 
as it continues to grow in this evolutionary way, you discover what was true all along is that it's possible for you. When you have what I term a moment of the imaginative possible, you suddenly realize, I can do this. Whatever this is, however modest, I can do this. I can sit through this knee pain. Oh, it's okay that I'm sitting here wanting. It's okay that I have this memory. It is possible for me to stay present, to not get lost in this memory. I've been lost in it 10,000 times. I've gone through all this emotional strum and drong over and over again. It's possible. It's just this memory. And you know it. It is, it is, it is imaginatively possible. You can imagine. You know on the front end that you have this possibility of doing it. That is knowing what you know. I stress this because so often people don't recognize, yogis don't recognize how much of the imaginative possible has already happened to them, how much they've already become capable in terms of walking the path, and they don't trust their practice because they've not realized, they don't know what they know. <laughs> this is back to this last insight, the, the knowing that the path has been cultivated. You have, in fact, cultivated the path. The imaginative possible is when, oh yes, I can do this. Yeah, I know how to do this. It's great that you can do that. Give yourself a little slack, for goodness sake. We are conditioned to look for what we can't do. Notice what you can do. That's the momentum of the practice. Today, Hugh described these uh, three stages of realization of freedom that uh, I used as a way of, uh, of helping gain context, perspective of what is cessation that I described in Dancing with Life. That's just a skillful means. I'm not presenting it as like the Buddha whispered that in my ear to begin with. And lo and behold, What's always most tantaling, tantalizing to most people is nibbana, you know? Liberation, full liberation, the realization of emptiness. Understandably so. It is our largest aspiration. It is the one that can inspire us the most. And in fact, it is the end of the path. The end of the path that is already here in potentia right now. For most of us, I would question that it was actually within the imaginative possible. There's a few maybe, but for most of us, not so sure that I, I believe that we really have really imagined that we in this lifetime could achieve that. Each step, in fact, along these stages of development that we realize, oh, this is possible, is, is such a big thing. So if you've had this, you would know it. So uh, there's many different ways to understand nibbana, in including many different ways to understand emptiness, emptiness that is found on the path. I'm just going to mention three. Remember that what I'm doing tonight is providing context and perspective. I'm not uh, taking you through a, a, a set of, uh, of practice knowledges for you to go work on, but rather to give you a broader context as your walking path, both here and going forward. So one way to look at this uh, emptiness is to see that 
and, and this is literally a kind of seeing or knowing that, the, that there is in this emptiness that everything is always changing. And it's always changing. And, and that it's always changing. There's nothing to grab hold of since it's always changing. This is a literal scene, a literal knowing. This is not figurative. It's not, uh, it's not regular perception. It's not deductive, inductive. It is direct, intuitive knowing. It's a Vipassana knowing. And it is, it, it is a literal actualization. We use this word, the Buddha used this word realization for that reason. It's realized. It flowers. All of you know it. It's not a, it's not a piece of your mind knowing it. And fortunately also in this emptiness, it's empty of, of any kind of a static or permanent ego structure self. The ego self is always changing too which is very fortunate since there's nothing for the ego structure to grab hold of. It's very fortunate there's no static self there that has to do that. That's actually good news, not something that's threatening if understood in that way. In the relative world, the ego structure is just like it is. It's always there. We're always, it's always moving. In fact, in the relative world, we can all know that any given moment, our, what we're thinking, feeling is always changing. But in this deep way, it comes across with a very different understanding. So that's emptiness as a knowing. There's also emptiness as a space, as, a, a, as the realm from which everything arises. If this room were not empty, we couldn't be in it. If there was not emptiness, there would be no room for the next moment. It would have already gotten filled up by now. The emptiness of, of phenomena allows for the ongoingness of phenomena. And then uh, with that understanding of the emptiness, we see the utilization, the value of emptiness as this, as in this context. This is just one of many, many contexts of emptiness. And we start to have this comfort of, uh, with emptiness in our own life rather than getting afraid. Because as we walk the path, we can come to moments when we start to have some hint of this emptiness, and it scares us. So we jump away. We turn away. I can remember quite distinctly a moment when I did that in my own practice, when I was, I'd, I'd had a series of real, realizations in, in sitting in meditation. And just as this last realization was starting to happen, it scared me. And I, I jumped away. I immediately afterwards went and told my teacher that I had done this because I was so embarrassed with myself because I thought I was such a serious student. I scared myself a little. I wasn't ready for that time. I didn't have this context, this perspective. And so I, got, I was so into it that in my ego structure was so present that it scared me and it, it jumped me out of it. I, I've witnessed this many different ways with many different students, oftentimes with the students not knowing it. It's just part of path. And then emptiness in its most profound sense for me, again, this is, these three are just uh, part of many ways that you could describe emptiness, is that it's empty of greed, hatred, and delusion the way Hugh described it today. That's such good news, that there can be this realization such that there is no longer even the possibility of greed, hatred, and delusion arising. You may or may not believe that is possible. There may come an imaginative possible moment where you realize, oh, this might be true. That's a profound moment, if in fact that ever arises for you.
So there's also a way to look at the path itself. Going back to this koan, what does path mean to you? What does path mean to you? There's a way to look at path as, oh, I get it. Path is what's empty. So you're walking through the woods, going through all these, these uh, bushes that have all these thorns on it. You know, there's these thick trees together, and you stumble on the path. You're so glad that you're on the path. Why is it a path? Because it's empty of all those bushes with thorns, all those thick trees. It's empty. What's the implication of that? The emptiness of path. What would that mean to you? Is there some clue there in some way? What might that mean? I leave that with you. I leave it with you. This is a koan. It's something for you to consider for yourself. Not my understanding of that, but your understanding. What would it mean? And notice that when you are able to stay with the emotional difficulty or you've hit this moment of peace, just total peace, it's empty of hindrances. So then emptiness, ah, is that very moment, that very moment, the whole, if we just stayed, looked, felt, opened, in that very moment, is it all right there? Your koan. I just want to mention a couple of things about uh, this, uh, uh, the um, idea of these three stages as one, again, as a skillful means for uh, thinking of this exploration of cessation. Uh, in the book, I actually describe four uh, uh, stages, in a sense, a pre-stage of becoming psychologically more healthy. I call this out because without fail, anyone that has stuck with practice, in my witnessing them over a number of years, has become psychologically more healthy. No matter how they went about their practice, if there was a sincerity in the practice and there, there, was, there was some structure and form to it, they became more healthy. And that's a great thing. It's also uh, uh, seduction off the path. So uh, I've had a number of students that I've watched uh, as they got more comfortable with themselves. They this sense of their unworthiness or that they, they didn't believe in themselves, they get to going, no, this, this mindfulness and this, this loving kindness, is, I, I really feel good about me. You know, I always wanted to start my own business. You know, oh, I always wanted to da-da-da. And they go off the path to go do these things. <laughs> I never consider that a defeat. When the time is right, they will come back to the path if it's right for them. Since we don't proselytize, there's no clutching, there's no clinging. So that can happen with you. You can get to feeling better, and you take all that you've learned here, which has been given freely, and you go off to make your way in the world to satisfy your ego structure's needs. That's okay. You can do that and still stay on path, but as I say, I've seen many people abandon any kind of a formal practice, and it's fine. 
consciously in some instances say, you know, that's just not my priority right now. That's fine. Just to know that and to know that's a choice. If you have a moment of the imaginative possible in relation to this, you can say, I'm going to go back into the world, or I'm in the world and I'm going to go for it now at long last, and I'm going to keep walking the path. And it may take you a while to find how to do that, because as you recommit to having babies or taking care of your grandchildren or uh, becoming really healthy or you know, being an entrepreneur, it seems like all your time and all your attention is taken. Again, a teacher can help you with that in terms of finding that moment of what you can imagine that it's possible to stay on the path and do that. In this first stage, then, of the ego uh, experiencing a kind of transformation, again, that to me is quite a literal experience. The, the ego is still seeing itself in the center, that it's all about the ego. But how it sees itself in the center uh, changes a lot. And it, how that would be described is so different from one person to another that there's not um, an easy description to offer. But I have witnessed this a lot. One of the big signs of it is that you cease to be so self-referenced, so primarily self-referenced. This obsession, this, uh, uh, the, the, the weight of being self-referenced is eased. There's a lightness. Very uh, palpable, this, this lightness. It feels so good to not be stuck in this constant self-referencing, this ego thinking it's supposed to take care of everything, that its job is to make everything right, and da-da-da, and to, to just get out of that whole syndrome of it. You're certainly still in a, and uh, you're going to have a lot of grasping and clinging and all, but you've just got a lot more room for the imaginative possible to arise. In this uh, stage of transcendence of the ego structure, the ego is not destroyed, but it no longer sees itself as being the center. This has been described in many traditions in many different ways, but the, the ego no longer thinks that uh, what it needs and wants is the center of everything. And you can imagine how uh, much easier that is, what a burden it takes off that ego structure. There is still, in what, the way I'm suggesting this, there's still subject and object, so you're still in this dualness, but the, 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 you hold the dualness of uh, so much easier, and there's lots of moments when there's not this feeling of duality in the same way. Many people believe that transcendence is as high as we can go, that that's the end of path. And not just one tradition, but in lots of traditions. They believe that's as far as the human potential exists. You have to decide for yourself about that. It's big ways, it's a long ways down the path. So maybe your debate about that with yourself can be a small part of your exploration of what is path. And, and not be so concerned about, well, what does it mean, liberation? Like, how far can you go? Is it really true that there's, there are arahants where there is no longer any greed, hatred, or delusion? Where everything is transparent, this whole level is transparent. Is that really possible? Is it really necessary to answer that question from where you are right now? 
Decide for yourself. One aspect of this that Hugh didn't have time for this morning that I would like to highlight is that there's a big difference between mind states and stages of development. At any point in time, you can fall into an exalted mind state. You can get into an exalted mind state of a sort through drugs and things, only of a sort, because uh, the, the, the brain chemistry, I think, by the drug makes it uh, not the same thing. But they can have some of the uh, characteristics. That's just my personal view. But not, it is not the same thing. But you get this hint of it in that way. And there's, uh, in, in, in your sitting practice, some of you here on this retreat have ex had exalted mind states. Why some people have more exalted mind states uh, versus others is a mystery, and in the end does not matter. The mind state isn't what we're developing. We're developing these stages of freedom, these stages of non-clinging, the stages of non-suffering. That's what's being developed. The mind states have their own coming and going. You can get confused with a mind state. And one of the unfortunate things about mind state is that the ego can identify with the mind state. Wow, I did this. Whoa, my, my meditation must be really special. Wow. And uh, then there's this idea, oh, well, I had that. This is it. I want it again. I want it again. And you can spend literally years, met many a yogi, you can spend years looking for that mind state again. Is that path or not path? I leave it to you. So also to uh, not confuse someone who is reporting that they've had certain mind states, altered mind states, exalted mind states, and proclaiming themselves because of that. Not necessarily listening to them describe what is path or not path, but rather seeing what stage of development they are in terms of path, as best you can tell, as best you can tell. A lot of misguidance has come from people who had genuine states of mind, but they, they confused that with being a stage. They were in their ignorance, and they had a temporary moment or a, a long period of time or a series of moments of altered mind states, exalted mind states, and then they went back to, to ignorance and didn't know it because they were deluded. It can happen to any of us, any time. We're, we're not above that. We don't think of ourselves as above that, please. And so there is a kind of call to surrender of our, our idea of ourselves, of our thinking ourselves so special. Uh, Eliot puts it this way. Old men, we can make it old men, old women, young women, middle-aged women, old men, middle-aged men, young men. <laughs> Old men ought to be explorers. Here and there does not matter, those things that we grasp on at the moment. We must be still and still moving into another intensity for a further union, a deeper communion. To me, this is the feeling of choosing path. What is path? Old men ought to be explorers. Here and there does not matter. We must be still and still moving into another intensity for a further union, a deeper communion. Path offers this. 
You've had a taste of path, so this is what you know. You know, in however way that you have imaginatively had the possibility of it, that this is what path offers. And so we sit with this, with this possibility. And as we do so, we come into this moment at times where we are free, no matter how brief. No matter how brief, we are free. Maybe just uh, uh, that three seconds that I told you about throughout. There's a release. There's a release, and you know that there is a release. You know that you know there is a release. Another poem. This is called 10,000 Flowers in Spring by Wu Min. 10,000 flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. Every moment that you're awake on path is the best season of your life. This you know, you know. Let's sit together for a moment. There are two kinds of suffering, the suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you are not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. Thank you for your very kind attention. Now it's time to walk.